I'll tell you what, it's a really cool thing to be able to come to a church that I don't think I've been at Calvary Slow for probably, I don't know, seven years. I think the last time Brian had me speak was probably like seven years ago, but it's really cool to be able to come to a church like this and feel like I'm at my home church. <laughs> um, I mean, I, Brian was one of the first pastors I met in town. I think he was the first pastor that I met in town 15 years ago, so we've known each other that long. And then to be here when the Sauterans are dedicating their little girl was really special to me because Eric was one of the first students that I ever had in a Bible study 15 years ago. It's been that long. Um, <laughs> and I also was able to do their marriage counseling and perform their wedding ceremony. So I know the Sauterans pretty well. Adam, the sound guy, we've been to East Asia together. We spent a summer in East Asia. And then as I look around the audience, I know a lot of you guys. Um, so this is really fun for me to come back to my home church <laughs> that, I'm at, that I'm at every seven years, right? Um, well, what I'm going to do this morning, honestly, it feels a little risky uh, because I know that this church is known for teaching the Word of God verse by verse and, and, really, and really taking the Word of God seriously and speaking from His Word. I'm not going to teach the Word this morning. So don't throw me out. Let me explain myself a little bit. What I want to do this morning is I want to teach about the Word. I want to teach us how to study God's Word and how to get the most out of His Word. And this is something I'm very, very passionate about. I teach it to our Bible study leaders every single year. Every time we have a new batch of Bible study leaders, this is what we talk about. How to study God's Word. How to handle it accurately how to handle it carefully. If you think about God's Word, I mean, it's the Word of God. It comes with tremendous, tremendous authority and power. And anytime you have something that's so powerful and so authoritative, if you don't handle that accurately and carefully, it can do great damage. Obviously, it can do great good, but it can do great damage. That's why we have cults. That's why there are a lot of wars over religion. Life and death are in how we handle God's word, whether it be through war, physical life and death, but also our spiritual life and death. Is it, it comes from the word, and so we need to learn how to study it accurately. This church teaches God's word, and I love that about it. One of the things I want to do this morning is I want to help each and every one of us be able to be self-feeders from the word. You know, probably you've heard the saying, if you teach a man to, if you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. But if you teach a man to fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. And we obviously need to teach God's word from the pulpit, from up front. I do that in our meetings as well. But to be able to equip people to feed themselves, right, it's going to last for a lifetime. And so that's what I want to do this morning I'm not going to be teaching from his word, but teaching more about his word. And I've done this in a couple churches in the area, and it seems to be hitting a felt need, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to take the risk. Um, I didn't realize so many of our students were still going to be here, so for some of you guys, it's review, but that's okay. You know, I get excited every time I teach this stuff, honestly, because um, it's just, it reminds me, it reminds me that we can understand God's word. You know, we really can get to what he intended for us. Even though we're, we're having to cross thousands of years of culture in, in different language and all that, we can do it. We can do it. So I hope you're 
encouraged by this, and I hope it's helpful. The other thing, too, that I was talking to James before the service, and he said, yeah, last week was pretty heavy. There was some kind of heart-wrenching stuff, and I think today will be a little bit of a break from the heart-wrenching to more of the head-wrenching. <laughs> we're going to be doing some <laughs> academic stuff, a little academic, so we're going to move from the, back to the head, um, so hopefully it's a good change of pace. Um, it's funny, I was looking at this podium, and it's like all angled in some kind of hipster style, you know, because <laughs> you guys are like the hip church. I hope you know that. I'm like, gosh, can I, like, can I move it to center? And it's like, no, I'll probably mess up the artistic vibe. So <laughs> I'm just going to keep it here. I don't want to mess anything up. All right. Okay, so um, you probably, I mean, we talk about God's Word, and we talk about it how God is speaking to us through His Word. I'm sure you've heard that before. And I think that is really true. But one of the things that we have to keep in mind when God is speaking to us, that he's actually, there's a few things that are in between, okay? First thing, we have to recognize that when God is speaking to us in his word, he's actually speaking to us through a human author, okay? Do we have, I don't know if the slides worked out. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. Oh, look at that. Next slide. Well, that's what we're talking about today, hermeneutics. That's probably a good thing to start with. Like, what are we talking about? Hermeneutics. It's a great word. It's a fancy word. What it means is methods of Bible interpretation. And we actually apply hermeneutics all through life. It's not just to the Bible, but anytime we read a piece of literature, even when we watch TV, believe it or not, we're applying a hermeneutic. We're applying a methodology, even though we may not recognize it, of interpretation. I'll explain that a little bit more. So the next slide, I think, has my really fancy... See, my students are used to my really crappy diagrams. So here's an example of that. So God does speak to us, but we have to recognize that he's speaking through a human author. That's why you can read Paul and recognize it as Paul, because he has a style to his writing. He has a certain language that he uses. He has actually a certain you know, take on things. And so Paul's writings are very similar as opposed to Peter's or the Old Testament writers. So we get, their, we get the flavor of that person as God's speaking through that author. He's also speaking to an original audience. Yes, he's speaking to us, but God is speaking to this audience. The author has an audience in mind when he's, when he's penning these words that God is inspiring him to write. So it's to an original audience. So when we come into the picture, what we're doing is we're looking at what God spoke through an author to an original audience. And so with that in mind, we have to understand what did that original audience, how did they think? What was going on in their minds? What was going on in their culture? And even a little bit, you know, what's going on in the text before that and after that, okay? So, yes, God speaks to us, and certainly his spirit illuminates the things that are in God's word, but we can't just read a passage and be like, oh, I'm just going to take this any way that I want. One of the worst questions you can ask in a Bible study, okay, Bible study leaders, pay attention. One of the worst questions you can ask is, what does this passage mean to you, okay? Now, if you mean what is the significance of this passage or how does this passage impact you, that's an okay question. But if the question means literally what does this passage mean to you and what you're asking that person is, hey, whatever you think it means is what it means, that's a dangerous question. That's how you get into all kinds of trouble. What we're looking for when we study the Bible 
is we're looking for the authorial intent, okay? What did the author, which is God speaking through a human author, what did the author intend the passage to mean? That's what we're looking for, the authorial intent. And to do that, we have to apply some hermeneutics. There's some methods. There's an approach to do that. So again, it's very dangerous to say, hey, what does this passage mean to you? And think that that's God's word, whatever somebody thinks it means. Okay? It's, it's way more authoritative than that. It's what God intended through the human author. Okay. Well, one of the things that you want to start with is we want to start with the big picture. I talk about this being top-down interpretation. And when, we, when you talk about the big picture, the first thing you want to talk about is the genre of literature. Now, the Bible is like a book, right? And within that book, there's actually 66 different books. And these books actually are written from different kinds of genres, okay? So let's do a little bit of an impromptu quiz. Don't, well, let me do this. Yeah, let me work through that first, and then we'll do the quiz. Okay. <laughs> so genre, right, that's the type of literature. We think about genre all the time when we're going through our everyday life. So, for example, when you were watching Saturday Night Live, okay, maybe you guys don't watch that show, but you probably know enough about it. There's this, there's this segment during Saturday Night Live called Weekend Update, okay? And the Weekend Update is like a new, it's supposed to be like a newscast, right? Now, when you're watching Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live, you know that this isn't the actual news. You know that this isn't factual reporting on the way things are, right? Versus if you're watching the evening news or you're reading it on the internet or whatever, you know that this is intended to be factual reporting and that you can read it with that lens, okay? What you're doing there is you're applying a hermeneutic. You're, you're, you understand the genre of those two different newscasts, and you're interpreting them based on the kind of genre that it is. Does that make sense? You've got to start there, because everything else follows from that. So after genre, you think about the overall purpose of the book. Each book has a, a, an overall purpose or a theme. The author is intending to communicate a big idea. You want to understand that. Everything flows from that. And then you think about the paragraph, and then you think about the sentence, and then you can look at the individual word. What we tend to do, however, is the reverse. A lot of times we'll look at a passage and we'll think, oh, I'm going to bust out my Greek lexicon, and I'm going to look at this word and figure out what it means in the original language. We start with the smallest piece rather than with the bigger piece of genre. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but... I want to encourage you to start with this genre because it affects, it affects everything. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about the different genres that are in the Bible. This is the quiz part. Don't show the slide yet. I don't want them to get the answers yet. Okay, so let's just shout it out. This is going to be a little bit of participation. When you think about the Bible, what are some of the different genres or types of literature in the Bible? Poetry. Poetry. History. Prophecy. Wait, hold on. You guys are good. Letters or epistles, they're sometimes called. Okay, keep going. Wisdom literature, right? Apocalyptic. You guys are really good at this. Wow. What else? Law. Awesome. 
Gospels, yes, they are a distinct kind of literature. Letters, right? The epistles, good. Narrative, historical narrative, awesome. Anything else? Okay, there are prayers in Scripture, awesome. It's not a particular type uh, or genre, but there are prayers in Scripture, awesome. What's that? So yeah, there's song, right? I'm going to include that under poetry, but that's, a, that's good. There are songs and psalms in the Bible. Parables. Well done. <laughs> that was the one I was waiting for. There might be other types, but those are the ones, I think the next slide lists them all. I don't even think I put parables down on that. Oh, yeah, I did. These are the different types of Bible literature. Now, what, I, what I'm doing today honestly, is I'm taking an entire semester's worth of hermeneutics in seminary and, and trying to do it in 40 minutes. <laughs> so, it, you know, I'm not going to be able to do that completely, but when I took hermeneutics in seminary, what we did is we looked at every one of these genres of literature, and we looked at how that genre, how your interpretation is affected by the kind of literature it is. What I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to give a few examples of that so you can see how, gosh, the genre really does make a difference. You have, you have these notes that are, were printed out. Turn to the back of it. Um, there's, there's a few resources that I list there. Playing with Fire by Walt Russell. That, he was my hermeneutics prof at Talbot Seminary. He wrote a book. And then the next book, the Fee and Stewart book. I mention those two first because those are two books that talk about the different genres and how the genre affects your interpretation of the scriptures. Okay, So if you want to learn more about this stuff, and I hope you will, those are a couple books to look at that are super important. I mean, just think about it. Like, How do we understand the law today? That's a huge question. Where does, how does the law fit in? Do we get rid of some of it? Do we get rid of all of it? Is it just the dietary laws? How do, how, what do we do with the law today? Well, understanding the law, understanding that genre is going to inform the answer of that question. Okay? We're not going to talk about law, though. Sorry. Let you down. But you can read about it in that passage, or in that book. Okay, well, let's, let's do this. Let's talk about um, a couple of the different genres of Scripture. The first one would be the poetry books. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but in some ways I'm pointing out the obvious with these books, but I think it's important to not miss the obvious. Okay, when you think about the poetry books, we're talking about Psalms, <clears throat> Song of Solomon, and there are little bits of poetry in, in different books as well, and there's definitely songs that find themselves even in the Gospels and in the Epistles. Sometimes there'll be a little prayer or song. Um, Think about, I mean, just think about poetry, the way poetry works, right? Poetry uses different kinds of literary devices. Okay, you guys did really well in quiz number one. What are some of the literary devices that are used, you know, in poetry? What are some qualities of poetry? Metaphor. metaphor awesome. What's the other one that goes with metaphor? Simile. Always alliteration. Awesome. Irony. Good. Hyperbole. 
Repetition, right? Okay, good. Personification, awesome. Onomatopoeia. <laughs> Bang. Uh, bam. That's what I should have said. All right. Yeah, personification. Anthropomorphism is another one that you see, especially in scripture. And anthropomorphism or personification is when, you know, especially in the Psalms, you can see this, that God is described in human terms, right? And so here's what's important with that. So my parents are Mormon, and a lot of times we will get into theological discussions. It doesn't happen as much anymore because those theological discussions often get really heated and people end up crying, and it's really, it's, it's a bummer, honestly. But one of the things that I've noticed is they will want to take me to passages because they believe that God has a human body, that the Father has a human body. So they're going to take me to passages where it describes God with human characteristics. The unfortunate thing is what they're doing is they're taking me to the Psalms, which are poetry, which are using these literary devices that poetry uses like personification, right? So for them, what they're doing is they're reading their theology into the passage, and they're taking a passage that's not intended to be literal, but taking it that way. So have you guys, I mean, this happens, right, where we're talking about theology with people. They're reading their theology into the passage. What do we do now? It, it's not just, well, that's what you think it says, and this is what I think it says, and I guess we just stop the conversation. No. No, there is a right way to understand these passages. And you don't go to the Psalms or the poetry places in Scripture as the first place to get your theology. If you go there for theology, you definitely have to have the lens on of its poetry. i got to be careful of how I'm taking it because it's metaphorical, right? It uses simile. It uses hyperbole. It uses personification, okay? So again, just an example of how the genre makes a difference. Let's talk about another one. Let's talk about the historical narratives. Um, so you got Genesis, Exodus, Chronic, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings. Um, Acts is a is a historical narrative, right? So here's some principles to apply there. I think we can keep moving on in slides. Maybe I need to cue you guys to do that. Oh, perfect. Here's some things to keep in mind with historical narratives. The first one is that narratives are descriptive and not necessarily prescriptive. This is huge. Narratives are descriptive and not necessarily prescriptive. What that means is that a historical narrative is describing the way things happened, the way things are or were. Okay? It's just describing things in the way that they were. It's not necessarily telling you and this is what you ought to do, okay? The historical narratives are an is, they're not an ought. This is what happened, and not necessarily this is what you ought to do, okay? Now, for a lot of passages, we get that. We read about David's sin with Bathsheba, and we get that that's an is and not an ought, okay? That's a pretty obvious one. But there are other places in Scripture where we see what happened and we think that's what we ought to do, okay? 
Now, I'm not saying they're not good, there are good examples in Scripture, and we should think about them and how they're informative to our behavior, but we need to be careful. Probably the, the doctrine that we get into the most trouble with today is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit when we look at the book of Acts as the place where we get our doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now, what we tend to do is we see how the Holy Spirit acted and what, how the church dealt with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. But remember what we're doing. We're seeing the way things were, the way they acted out. And you see the Holy Spirit descending like, you know, tongues of fire. That's one way the Holy Spirit came upon people. Other times, the Holy Spirit came and people spoke in tongues. Sometimes in the book of Acts, the apostles laid on hands in order for people to receive the Spirit. Um, so, you know, there's just these different ways that the Spirit acts. And we can get confused if we go there to understand the way that the Holy Spirit is given and the way that his power is manifest. What we should do is actually go to the doctrinal books first, like the epistles, to understand who the Spirit is, how believers are filled and indwelt, and how the Spirit manifests himself, and then look at those historical books as or acts as an illustration of these things. If you start with the book that's describing the way things are and not the way things ought to be, we can get into trouble. So don't start, you don't start your doctrine, you don't establish doctrine based on the historical books, you go to the doctrinal books first, which are the other points that I make. Um, they usually don't teach doctrine directly, um, so don't turn to those, those books first. What they're usually doing is they're illustrating doctors taught el doctors, doctrines taught elsewhere. So you can learn a ton about the character of God through the narratives. You see the way that he acts and the way that he treats people and the way that um, you know, he rules the universe. But we can learn a lot more about God when we go to passages that are teaching about his character. Make sense? Okay. The other point that I like to make is that they don't give all the details. They focus on certain, pa on certain facts. And this is how we know it's important, right? Somebody mentioned the repetition thing, which is actually, it happens all through Scripture. If things are repeated, and even if things are mentioned, that's what's important. John finishes his gospel by saying, gosh, if I reported everything that Jesus said and did and taught, it would take up you know, a, a library worth of space. He just reported the things that he considered most important, inspired by God. So keep that in mind that these narratives don't say everything that happened, but the things that are most important. Okay, let's, let's do at least one more. I don't know how much time I got here. Oh, yeah, we're good. Let's, let's talk about the wisdom literature, okay? Um, the wisdom literature that was mentioned. Proverbs. Ecclesiastes, I think there's a slide for this, let's see, we'll get there, uh, wisdom, wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then some consider Job also to be a book of wisdom literature. Okay, so how do we handle this particular kind of scripture? Well, let's, let's do this. There's a saying that my grandmother used to always say, and it's up on the screen. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Okay, who's, who's, who's heard that one before? Awesome. 
All the old people, cool. Um, <laughs> what does it mean? What does it mean? What is dear old grandmother trying to tell us? Somebody want to give it a shot? Shout it out. If wishes were fishes, okay. Another one. What? You have the advantage of either the opportunity because you have it in your grasp, you have control of it, or you just possess it. Okay. You having that bird, it's better than just seeing a bird. You don't have those in your hand. Right. Okay. Good, Eric. There's there's something advantageous about actually having it in your possession, rather than longing for, wanting for something better. Two of them that really aren't in your possession yet. It, what you have is, 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 is more valuable than what you don't have, even if what you don't have seems like it's a lot better, right? Um, what you have in your possessions is better than what you don't possess at all. If wishes were fishes, another way of describing it. Does it literally mean, does it literally mean if I have one bird in my hand, it is literally worth two in the bush? Okay, it does not literally mean that. Here's another one. My grandmother used to say this one all the time. Go to the next slide. A stitch in time saves nine. Now, who's heard that one? Yeah, this is an awesome one. What does that one mean? A stitch in time saves nine. Okay. Better to take care of a problem early on, right, before it actually, before it gets worse. So it's kind of like, change your oil, you know, um, <laughs> that kind of thing. Because it's, it's going to, you can do something, and it's usually the idea of you can do something small now um, to prevent something much bigger later, right, a bigger problem later. Does it literally mean... Every time you put a stitch in a garment that's coming apart, you will literally, in a law-like manner, save nine stitches later. But it doesn't mean that, right? That's not what it literally means, okay? How about this one? Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's Proverbs 22.6. Okay. Now, what I've just illustrated is the way that wisdom literature works, right? Wisdom literature, like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, what they're doing is they're teaching principles, not promises, right? Stitch in time saves nine, bird in the hand. Those are principles that are being taught that are general, generally true, but not in a law-like manner. The same is true for the book of Proverbs, right? This passage is generally true, but it is not a promise. The Proverbs are not promises. They're wisdom literature. And why that is so important is because so many parents will do their best to raise their kids according to Scripture, and then it didn't work out. And so what they do is they feel tremendously guilty about their parenting, figuring, thinking that they failed somewhere and they didn't train up a child in the way that he should go. Or worse, they begin to doubt God's fulfillment of promises. 
They doubt his faithfulness. And we are racked, our faith is rattled because we didn't see these things fulfilled. We didn't see the promise fulfilled. Well, it was never intended to be fulfilled. It's a general principle for living. Now, are there promises in Scripture? Absolutely. There's tons of promises in Scripture. There's promises we can go to the bank on. But, but the Proverbs is not a place of law-like promises literally going to be fulfilled, but great, great principles for living, okay? Well, I think we have time for one more. Let's um, do the Gospels. Gospels are a good, and then we're going to talk about a couple other things that are important. What I'm doing again is I'm just illustrating how the genre of literature, understanding that genre and understanding the principles of interpretation specific to that genre are really important. Okay, so hopefully this is motivating, not demotivating. Um, the Gospels. One of the things that we often can get concerned about with the Gospels is that the Gospels don't seem to match up perfectly, um, right? You've got, you've got the three Gospels that do, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke that um, do tend to match up pretty well. But even there, you know, you see some events that are out of order. And then you've got John's Gospel, which is totally, totally different. And we, we sometimes wonder, like, okay, how, does, how can that be if, if it's inspired by God and it's recording events that we take to be actual facts and actual historical events, why is there a difference in order? Why didn't they focus on all the same things? Well, the reason for that is because the Gospels are a specific kind of literature. They're actually a kind of literature that was specific to that day and age, and they're known as Hellenistic biographies. Hellenistic is just a word that means Greek, they were, they, were in the, they were in the form of biographies that were common to that day and common to the Greek world that the Gospels were written in, okay? What these biographies do is they do not focus on chronology. That's not what their purpose is. That's not their intent. The Gospels are a kind of biography that illustrates the qualities of a person by focusing in on stories and sayings and teachings, they emphasize and develop particular themes. And again, they're not, the, the focus isn't chronology. Okay? And you really see this when you think about the Gospels. Like each Gospel writer had a particular audience in mind when they wrote the Gospel. Okay? Think about Matthew. Some of you who have studied the Bible a little bit. Knowing what Matthew includes in his Gospel, who do you think the audience is in Matthew? Any idea? The Jews. I'm hearing murmurings of the Jews. Yes, it is the Jews. One of the ways you know that is because in the beginning of, the, of Matthew's gospel, there's this extensive genealogy, right? Showing the, the lineage of Christ. There is no gene, genealogy in John. None. In fact, in the book of Matthew, there's tons of prophecies that are mentioned, fulfillments of prophecies, showing that Jesus really is the Messiah that the Jews expected. In John, he has to explain what the Jewish holidays were all about. He literally has to explain to that audience what this Jewish holiday was for, because they didn't know. Because John's gospel, which was written much later, was really towards a Gentile audience, 
with the idea of clarifying the deity of Christ. That was his purpose. Completely different approach toward the gospel because it had a different purpose, whereas Matthew is like trying to convince the Jews that Jesus really is the Messiah. Tons of fulfilled prophecy, okay? So when we get, I mean, sometimes we'll be challenged in our faith. People will be like, well, this gospel says this, and this one includes this, and look at the order. It's out of order. We shouldn't be surprised by that because this is the kind of literature that it is. It didn't focus on chronology. Although Luke's gospel, because Luke's a historian, tends to follow the chronology best. But again, that's not the purpose of the gospels. Okay? All right. Well, enough about genres. Um, let's talk about context. <clears throat> yeah, I think I got time. So there's two kinds of context that we need to keep in mind. We need to keep in mind the literary context. So the literary context is what I was talking about before. What's the overall purpose of the book? Right? That's what's going on in the whole piece of literature. That's the literary context. And then it's also then coming down from the whole book to paragraph, sentence, and then word. Okay? So when you think about literary context, what's going on in the passages? What's going on in the book? Okay. So here's a statement. I have a trunk. I have a trunk. Okay, what does that mean? What do I, what do I mean when I say I have a trunk? You're an I am an elephant. Okay, so what's that? A really fat seal? An elephant seal, okay, cool. What else? A car, right? I have a trunk in my car. What else? A tree, I could be a talking tree who has the trunk. Luggage, right? Trunk, luggage, trunk. What else? Are there others? I think there are. Okay, a large container with very important stuff inside. Over the years when I've asked this question, I've gotten the answers also. I have half a pair of board shorts. I have a trunk. Um, and then I've, I've got a big booty. Here's the other one. Got junk in my trunk. Um, okay, so, right, what's the point of all this? There's got to be a point, Pappas. There is a point. The point is this. If I said, hey, let's figure out what this sentence means by taking the word trunk and figuring out its original origin in terms of linguistics. Like, let's find the root word in trunk. Let's start with the word, and, and, and that's going to tell us what this passage means. It's not going to help, right? By looking at the actual word, it's not going to help you understand this sentence as much as it does to understand the context. That's what I was illustrating. Is it a kid's book about an elephant? Is it a kid's book about a talking tree? Is it somebody talking about their car? The context, the literary context, is what most affects a word's meaning because words have a range of meaning depending on their context. A great biblical example of this is the word flesh. Okay, the Greek word for flesh is sarx. Okay, but understanding that is not going to help you understand the different ways that Paul uses the word flesh, and he uses it three different ways. He uses it to describe physical flesh, 
he uses it to describe our sinful desires or sin nature. And he also uses it to describe his life, his previous life, under the law. When he was in the flesh, he uses that to describe his life under the law. So we've got to be careful to just start tearing apart the word without thinking first about context. Okay. Now, if you want to know how a particular word is being used, what you want to do, literarily, is you want to start around the word. So if I want to know the way that Paul is using the word flesh in this particular passage, I actually want to look at the way that he's using flesh closest to that passage. So this is a little bit opposite of the way that you start in terms of genre working down. If you want to understand a word, you start with that word and work your way out. Because the author is going to use that word in the same way within that paragraph, within that book, and then you can expand maybe to the same or to other books that he's authored, then the same testament, and then you can look at the whole Bible. What a lot of people like to do is they like to do these word studies, and they look at the way that the word flesh has been used all through Scripture. That's a little dangerous because you've got all these different authors with different contexts and purposes and all this stuff in mind. That can be a dangerous thing to do. Um, I think it's helpful to get a big picture of the way that it's used, but be careful in understanding that passage by doing that, okay? So this is where a concordance can be really helpful. So there's another tool for you, a concordance, because it'll help you see where that word's used, and then you can you know, hone in on the closest place and then work your way out, okay? So keep in mind that words have a range of meaning depending on their literary context. All right, let's talk about historical context, and then I'll wrap things up. Okay, here's another statement. Here it is. You can flash the next slide. That's dope. Okay, that's dope. Okay, what does that mean? That's cool. That's marijuana. That's drugs. Or hash. Or some other kind of drug, right? Okay, so it has a range of meaning, right? Depending on context. It actually has a range of meaning depending on historical context, too. So back in the 60s, if you said, that's dope, it did not mean that's cool or that's hip, that's rad. It just meant one thing. It meant this is, this is some kind of drug, right? But now in our historical context, it can actually mean, hey, that's cool, that's pretty awesome. Another example would be, that's sick. You know, that's sick. That statement did not mean 40, 50 years ago what it means now, you know, because the, his, the historical context was different, okay? We have to understand that a text cannot mean what it did not mean to the original audience, okay? A text means what it meant to the original audience. So we have to understand how would the original audience understand this text? And a way to do that is to understand the audience. It's to understand who they are. It's to understand what was going on in their world, maybe what was going on in the particular situation. Keep in mind the, epistle, the epistles, Paul's epistles, are called occasional letters which means he's, a, he's writing them for a particular occasion, for a particular audience. They have a particular set of 
issues in mind. He has a particular set of issues in mind. We have to understand what those issues are to fully understand the text. And this, again, is where Bible resources are very helpful. Study Bibles will often give you the historical context. Sometimes in the beginning, they'll give you the historical context before the book, you know, in the front page or whatever. And then also you can look at different resources out there to understand the historical context. One of my favorite examples of this is um, Romans chapter 14, where Paul is saying, hey, um, don't eat meat. You know, he's telling, he's telling, well, he's giving them instructions about how to, what to do about meat. Do you eat it or do you not eat it? And if you were just to read that passage without understanding the historical context, you'd be thinking that Paul is some kind of, you know, activist for vegetarianism or something. You'd be thinking that it's a vegetarian context and he's, he's advocating that. And, and that's not what's going on there. What he's doing is he's talking about meat that has been sacrificed to idols, which would be totally offensive to a Jew to eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. But for a Gentile, they wouldn't care. They've been doing it their whole lives, not a big deal. And so those passages are informative to that specific situation, right? So he's helping them sort through, now that we're a Jewish and Gentile body of believers, what do we do about this issue? Is it okay to eat it? Do I not eat it? It's a great passage. So that's the specific situation that he has in mind. Now the application from that can be broad. We'll talk about application in just a second. Okay, well I need to wrap things up, so let me make, let me talk a little bit more about um, the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit. I think this is super important. Um, okay, so remember that the Holy Spirit was the inspiration of, this, of the passages that we're reading, right? The first thing that the Spirit did is he inspired these, are, these original authors to write to this original audience. So that's the, that's the doctrine of inspiration, okay? Using original authors to write these passages to us and for us. So he, he inspired the original words of Scripture. What the Spirit does now is he illuminates these passages, okay? He illuminates the passages. And when we think about the word illuminate, it's to shine light onto something. It's to help you see something more clearly. That's what the Spirit does. He illuminates the meaning and the significance of what's already there, okay? Same Spirit inspired, that is also going to illuminate, okay? In other words, he shows the meaning to us, brings it out, brings it out, and helps us to understand it. Okay? Seems common sense, right? But sometimes people say, the Spirit told me that. This passage says this. And you look at the passage and you say, there's just no way that this passage says that. That is not at all the context or the intended purpose of the author. There's just no way. And so we have to be really careful of that. Because the Spirit is not going to contradict himself. He's not going to inspire a passage to mean and say something and now inspire that person to understand it in a completely different way. When we're talking about the meaning of the passage, okay? Right? The passage must mean what it meant to the original audience. So now the, the, the Spirit can convict us and the Spirit can lead us to apply the passage in a lot of different ways. So when it comes to application, here's what I like to say. There's one meaning, but a thousand applications. A thousand applications. 
We want to understand the meaning of the passage, but the Spirit then can convict us on how to apply the passage in our particular life and situation. So if it's love your neighbors or turn the other cheek, for example, that passage means something specific, but its application is so, so, so broad, right? Depending on how the Spirit convicts and moves us. And that's where the question, hey, what does this passage mean to you? If what we mean by that is significance and application, fine. That's a very personal thing that, um, that the Spirit can convict individually. Um, there's a list of questions that I put down that you guys can ask yourselves as you're reading the Word and looking for applications. I won't read them all right now. Let me conclude by just saying this. You guys, we can get to the author's original intent when studying God's Word. Yes, it takes a little bit of work sometimes because we're, you know, we're, 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 we're moving across generations we're moving into different contexts culturally. We're, we're having to do a little bit to get back to that original audience, but we can do it. And fortunately, there's lots of really wise and smart people who have studied those cultures and have written books and have helped us, helped us see um, just, how, just how things were back then. So the goal in, in, in understanding scripture isn't to come up with the most creative translation or interpretation, you know, like... If a Bible teacher is teaching and you hear him teach and you're just like, oh my gosh, I never would have gotten that. That is crazy. It's probably not a good teaching. What we should be able to say is, oh, I understand how he got to that. It makes sense based on literary context, cultural context, genre and all that stuff. So kind of a test for us guys who teach the word. You know, don't just go by what we say. Study it for yourselves, and if we're off base, come and talk to us, you know, come and talk to us. Okay, well, we're going to have one more worship song. Let me pray for us, um, and I hope this has been helpful and will be helpful to helping us be self-feeders from God's Word. God, it is amazing that you would give us this gift of your Word, for we can handle your thoughts your intentions, your desires for us. We sometimes ask, God, what is your will? And yet you've relayed it to us so clearly in your word. And Lord, we get an awesome picture of how you work and the way your people have loved you and failed you. Lord, I thank you that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it convicts and pierces our hearts and our souls. So, Spirit, I pray that when we approach your word, we approach it carefully with wisdom and accuracy. And, Spirit, thank you that you guide us through that process. God, I pray for your spirit to illuminate, to then convict, and then to empower so we can put it into practice. Thanks that we're not in this alone as we study your word, that your spirit is in us. You are in us. The very one who inspired these words hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago is there to help us understand and apply. So Lord, thank you for the gift of your word. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.